0: 2021. This is the All-American Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Seawright. Is the United States going to war against Russia? And if so, why? And what will be the outcome of such a war? These are three key questions we'll look into in this episode of the All-American Podcast. So the first question, is the United States going to war against Russia? Well, I can't predict that this is going to happen with any degree of certainty, but it certainly looks like it. And this of course would be a catastrophe for not just Russia, but for the United States and the world. Now, anti-Russian rhetoric has been ramped up in recent weeks under the Biden administration. And the rhetoric is based on an allegation that Russia has invaded innocent little Ukraine in 2014 in an effort to stamp out democracy and expand Russian territory. Now, before we get into this analysis in any real depth, it is important to understand the history of Ukraine, particularly regarding their historical and cultural connection to Russia, as well as their geopolitical importance and the strategy of the globalists who are in charge of NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. That's the American and Western European military alliance that was designed to stop the threat of communism from the Soviet Union in the wake of World War II. The history of Ukraine and its ties to Russia are laid out pretty well and pretty succinctly in a piece by Dmitry Orlov of the website thesaker.is. So I'm going to borrow a little bit from his description of that history and add in some other research that I've come across as well. But it is important to know that Ukraine is not a country that has been around a whole lot. It is not that much older than the United States, as a matter of fact. And Ukraine was never really a term, and most certainly not a country, until around the 16th century. Previous to this, it was a territory, much smaller, Than the country it is today. And that territory floated back and forth between the control of being Russian territory and Polish territory. And the term Ukraine itself is of Polish origin, actually. And in English, we would translate it as borderland or at the border. Now, after years of conflict with the Polish Catholic Church, Remember that Ukrainians are Orthodox Christians, just like the Russians. The Ukrainian people decided to gravitate more towards Russia to avoid the oppression and the serfdom that they were put under at the hands of the Polish. So they went and started to ally with the Russians more. And that's for a few good reasons, including the fact that many Ukrainian people living in that area had Russian roots now russia of course had conflicts with the people of that territory as well and eventually even entered into a conflict with them even after granting the ukrainian people some degree of independence that led to ukraine entering into a treaty with poland and a war against russia and the partitioning of ukraine so back in the 1650s Ukraine was a country, finally, but note that, importantly, it did not include much of the territory we see today, and it most certainly did not include the southeastern third of the country, including Crimea. That had been Russian territory, and the vast majority of the population in those areas was, and still is today, Russian. Now, similarly... Ukraine did not include the western end of the country, either. That was part of the Habsburg Empire, also known as the Austro-Hungarian Empire, until that empire was defeated in World War I. That part of the country also had a Russian population, but they were largely mixed with Poles, Austrians, Hungarians, and even Romanians. And this mixed bag of languages and dialects was the basis for the Ukrainian language. So it's pretty easy to see. There's a convoluted history here, but it is a history that you cannot understand without knowing that it grew out of Russian, Polish, and Austro-Hungarian territories. But it was populated, again, in the southeast with majority Russian people, and this has not changed To this day. Now, in 1917, the Communist Revolution struck, and after World War I ended, Russia, which controlled Ukraine at that time, created the Soviet Union, merging territories it controlled in 1922 into what would be called the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, the USSR, or Soviet Union for short and Ukraine was one such territory within the USSR, and it became known as the Ukraine Soviet Socialist Republic, just as Russia was then the Russian Soviet Socialist Republic. It was also at this time that Vladimir Lenin, who was the father of the Bolshevik Revolution, gave what was Russia and what is now Southeast Ukraine minus Crimea to the Ukraine Soviet Socialist Republic. You with me so far? So this meant that Russia was actually ceding land and people to fall under the control of the Ukraine Soviet Socialist Republic. Now, consequently, many Russians living on this land were very unhappy about it, but in the spirit of being good communist citizens, they had to accept it because after all they may not have been part of russia anymore but they were part of the greater soviet union one country with many republics for context there were eventually a total of 15 soviet republics in the soviet union you must be clear and remember and i'm going to say it again because it's important to note because of this conflict we're now entering into. The majority of the population in the southeastern half of Ukraine, including Crimea, was and still is Russian. And that Crimean Peninsula, which juts out into the Black Sea, was Russian land and the people were Russian through all of this history. The next major event, excluding World War II, of course, came in 1954. At this time, the Soviet Union was led by a Ukrainian named Nikita Khrushchev, and under his powers as Soviet premier, he actually donated land from Russian control to Ukrainian control. Ostensibly, this was to reward the politicos in the Ukraine who supported his bid to become Soviet premier. So at this point, Russian land and the Russian people of Crimea fell under control of Ukraine, the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic. We always have to note that the Russian Republic, the Republic that actually was at the heart of the Soviet Union and was the center of Soviet power, maintained and still to this day maintains a Black Sea naval base as well as other major bases in the Crimean Peninsula. And since the end of the Cold War and the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, this important strategic asset has been in the crosshairs of America and NATO. Ukraine, like other former Soviet republics, was targeted by the West for a Western takeover. The purpose? To expand NATO to Russia's doorstep. Get control over valuable agricultural land and natural resources, while cutting off Russia from its historical area of interest, as well as from its only warm-water military port in Crimea. When the West sponsored the Orange Revolution in Ukraine in 2014, and overthrew the democratically elected government of Viktor Yanukovych by way of a Western-sponsored coup d'etat, in order to install a puppet regime sympathetic to the West's great game, Russia knew it. They knew exactly what was going on, and they rapidly moved to secure their bases and people in Crimea. Remember, Russia did not invade Crimea. Russia was already there. It already had a population, military bases, and several other assets there. And the population was near 100% Russian. The invasion story is just a part of the globalist propaganda. So while supporting its native Russian population in Crimea and in the rest of Southeast Ukraine, for that matter, A referendum of the people in Crimea on rejoining Russia won with 95% of the people voting to rejoin Russia. Did your mainstream media tell you that? Don't think so. Now, in the southeastern parts of Ukraine, the majority of Russian people there actually took up arms and declared independence from Ukraine, citing the illegal coup d'etat and revolution which overthrew the democratically elected government of Ukraine. Since 2014, these majority Russian southeastern areas have declared independence in the form of two breakaway republics. One is called the Donetsk People's Republic and the other is the Lugansk People's Republic, collectively referred to as the Donbass. Now there was a secret recording involving Barack Obama's Assistant Secretary of State Victoria Nuland, who worked for Hillary Clinton of course, that was made public several years ago after Obama and crew fomented this revolution in Ukraine. This recording disclosed much of the Western plot, and it was put out for nearly all to hear and understand that America had come to Ukraine with an agenda, which was the overthrow of a government, the installation of a puppet regime, which included Western-controlled financiers, Ukrainian oligarchs, and the famous Ukrainian heavyweight boxer, Vitaly Klitschko, so that Ukraine could be folded in the globalist order and so Russia could be cut off from its important military assets in Crimea. Now, we have this recording for you, and here it is. What do you think? Uh, I think we're
1: in play. Um, the the uh, Klitschko piece is obviously the complicated electron here, um, especially the announcement of him as Deputy Prime Minister. And, and you've seen some of my notes on the troubles in the marriage right now, so we're trying to get a read really fast on where he is on this stuff. But I think your argument to him, which you'll need to make, I think that's the next phone call we want to set up is exactly the one you made to to yachts, And I, I'm glad you sort of put him on the spot on where he fits in this scenario. And I'm very glad he said what he said in response.
2: Good. So uh, I don't think Cleach should go into the government. I don't think it's necessary. I don't think it's a good idea.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I guess you think – what in terms of him not going into the government, just let him sort of stay out and do his political homework and stuff. I'm just thinking, in terms of sort of the process moving ahead, we want to keep the moderate Democrats together. The problem is going to be Tony Book and his guys, and you know I'm sure that's part of what Yanukovych is calculating on all of this. Um, I'm kind I kind of.
2: I just- I think Yats is the guy who's got the economic experience, the governing experience. He's, he's the guy, you know, what he needs is Cleach and Tani Book on the outside. He needs to be talking to them four times a week, you know. I, I, I just think Cleach going in, he's going to be at that level working for Yatsenyuk. It's just not going to work.
1: Yeah, no, I think, that's, you know? I think that's right. Okay, good. Well, do you want us to try to set up a call with him as the next step?
2: My understanding from that call, but you tell me, was that the big three were going into their own meeting and that Yachts was going to offer in that context a three-way, you know, the three plus one conversation or three plus two with you. Is that not how you understood it?
1: No, I think, I mean, that's what he proposed, but I think just knowing the dynamic that's been with them where um, Klitschko has been the top dog, he's going to take a while to show up for whatever meeting they've got, and he's probably talking to his guys at this point. So, I think you reaching out directly to him helps with the personality management among the three, and it, and it gives you also a chance to move fast on all this stuff and put us behind it, behind it, before they all sit down and he um, he explains why he doesn't like it.
2: Okay, good. I'm happy. Why don't you reach out to him and see if he wants to talk before or after?
1: Okay, will do. Thanks.
2: Okay, I've now written. Oh, one more wrinkle for you, Jeff. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember if I told you this or if I only told Washington this, that when I talked to Jeff Feltman this morning, he had a new name for the UN guy, Robert Sari. Did I write you that this morning?
1: Yeah, I saw
2: that. He's now gotten both Sari and Ban Ki-moon to agree that Sari could come in Monday or Tuesday.
1: Okay. So
2: that would be great, I think, to help glue this thing and have the UN help glue it. And, you know, fuck the EU.
1: No, exactly. And I think we've got to do something to make it stick together, because you can be pretty sure that if it, does, if it does start to gain altitude, the Russians will be working behind the scenes to try to torpedo it. And again, the fact that this is out there right now, I'm still trying to figure out in my mind why Yanukovych did that. But in the meantime, there's a party of regions faction meeting going on right now, and I'm sure there's a lively argument going on in that group at this point. But uh, anyway, we could, uh, we could land jelly side up on this one if we move fast. So let me work on, let me work on Klitschko, and if you can just keep – I think we want to try to get somebody with an international personality to um, come out here and help to midwife this thing. And then the other, the other issue is some kind of outreach to Yanukovych, but we we'll probably regroup on that tomorrow as we see how things start to fall into place.
2: So on that piece, Jeff, uh, when I wrote the note, uh, Sullivan's come back to me, uh, VFR, saying you need Biden, and I said probably tomorrow for an attaboy and get the deeds to stick. So okay. Biden's willing.
0: Okay, great. All right. Thanks. Now that is one revealing recording, isn't it? So fast forward to today. The revolution and game plan was rolled out under Obama and Biden, suspended under Trump. And now, with Trump out, the game is on once again. The intensifying conflict between Ukraine, Russia, and the breakaway republics is intensifying, with multiple ceasefires being broken and violence breaking out all over the Donbass. All indications have revealed that Ukraine, with the military and command and control support of NATO, has been gearing up for a major offensive against the Donbass regions around the time of the Orthodox Easter, which is on May 2nd, 2021. So if something is going to break out, I would expect it to be right around or after May 2nd. In response to this buildup and this new violence that is breaking out all over that area, Russia has begun mobilizing hundreds of thousands of troops to the Donbass border with Russia, that border with Ukraine, to defend its Crimean assets as well as the people who live there in the Donbass. So we are looking at the potential for a major conflagration. And what will be the outcome of such a war? Well, unfortunately, nothing good and it may become far worse than we might imagine. Ukraine itself is no match for Russia, but with the help of NATO, it is. Russia could crush NATO in a couple of weeks, but with the help of NATO, that is not a task that is likely to happen. People, of course, would be foolish to underestimate Russia's ability to inflict significant harm on NATO And as a matter of fact, Russia is a country with some extremely tough people and whose soldiers are not slaves to the politically correct indoctrination that we have here in the United States. Their soldiers are tough and they are prepared to endure far more hardships than our modern, weakened, and emasculated military. Still, a collective security agreement with NATO means that 30 countries plus Ukraine would be fighting against Russia potentially, and that would be a challenge that Russia would probably not overcome but for nuclear weapons. Russia has two major things going for it besides the toughness of its people. The first is the fact that Germany and some other countries may be unlikely to support a war because they rely very heavily on Russian raw materials and natural gas. Second, as I just stated, Russia is a nuclear power that rivals the United States. And if you know the Russian soul and Russian history, you know that Russia is not going to lay down for any attack on its people or territory. And if it appears that they are going to lose a conventional war against NATO, I would put the odds pretty high that they would go nuclear. And if this happens, the entire Northern Hemisphere will be turned into a glass-floored, self-lighting parking lot. Sadly for America, the U.S. has done nothing to prepare its people for the insanity of a nuclear war, but Russia has. America will suffer much more greatly than Russia, and you can take that to the bank. But there is no winner to a nuclear war. But the globalist powers that be are just crazy enough to risk it. And with that, I'll leave you with your quote of the day, and it comes from Abraham Lincoln. There's no honorable way to kill no gentle way to destroy. There is nothing good in war except its ending. Thank you and good night.